Thanks, Brad. Well, you are all pretty used to uh, having a single scripture that somebody up here reads or it's on the screen or something like that. I'm going to do a little something different today. Uh, I'm going to take a whole chapter. And some of you just breathed in and went, oh boy, uh, game starts at three. Um, uh, Matthew chapter eight. So if you have your Bible or your phone or something, take that out because we're going we're gonna to do kind of a big picture view of Matthew chapter 8 and the different things that happened there. So grab that, hang on to it for a minute. We'll get to it in a second. I recently finished reading a book that um, some of you may have read a long time ago. It's titled, The Boys in the Boat. Anybody read this book? All right, there's a, there's a, if you haven't read this book, it's a fantastic book. Very well written. It'll, it'll suck you in and keep you by the fire for a couple days at least. It's a story about the 1936 Olympic rowing team. And in your head, 1936, you probably realize that was in Germany, Nazi Germany, before the beginning of the war. It's an unlikely story from the beginning because this is a group of outsiders. The, the elite rowing teams at the time in the U.S. were on the East Coast, and they were the, um, the upper crust sons of congressmen and things like that. And this was a group from the West Coast, and these were sons of loggers and shipyard workers and farmers, and really nobody expected that they would win anything, um, but they did. First off, they, they went to the East Coast, and they, they beat those guys, and then they beat the, the British team that had been rowing for generations, and, and finally they ended up in Germany in 1936 as Hitler was consolidating power and and all of that. And so it's kind of an interesting idea, this group of outsiders going to a country that at the time was drawing hard lines between insiders and outsiders and defining itself as the insiders. And we know how that turned out. The Aryan race was defined as the pure race, the ultimate insiders, and anyone who didn't fit their mold was defined as outsiders and worthy of death. In fact, just a few short years after the Olympics, seven years later, 1943, four huge cremation plants had been built. They were fully operational at Auschwitz. They housed eight gas chambers and 46 ovens that could dispose of 4,400 bodies a day. The bodies of outsiders. 1.1 million, a conservative estimate is that 1.1 million outsiders were gassed to death at Auschwitz. Joe Rance is the main character 
they follow his life throughout this book. And he's an outsider himself. His, his mom died when he was just a little boy. And his, daughter, his dad remarried, um, and his stepmom didn't want him. And so in a, in a mining camp not too far from here on the border of Idaho and Montana, um, his dad made a deal with the teacher in the mining camp that Joe would go um, work for housing. And so at 10 years old, he got kicked out of his house and went to work um, for the teacher in town. And that happened until the family needed to move on. And, and once again, Joe found himself abandoned by his family. But he kind of scrabbled things together and, and uh, made it, was able to make it to the University of Washington, where he knew that, that rowing would be his only chance at being able to stay in because people on the rowing team got an opportunity, the first shot at jobs. And this is during the Depression, so jobs are pretty scarce. And you might think, well, it's the Depression, so by the time he, he's at the university, this is, well, even at the university, he found himself kind of on the outside. It, he really didn't have anything. What he had, he... In the winter months, he would wear the same old ratty, torn-up sweater every day because that's what he had. And he quickly, um, people identified that Joe's a little different, doesn't have what the rest of us have. So Matthew chapter 8 is a story, well, it's a link, it's a group of accounts of what Jesus did going to the outsiders. And I want to take... A lot of times we'll, we'll zoom into these passages and we'll look at them one at a time, and, and that's helpful. You've probably heard sermons on Jesus uh, healing the man with leprosy or Jesus calming the storm or uh, Jesus healing the servant of the Roman centurion. But I want to zoom out this morning and look at a common thread that weaves its way throughout these accounts in Matthew chapter 8. Take a bird's eye view. So the chapter begins with a man with leprosy coming and kneeling before Jesus. Now wait just a second. If you can put yourself in that spot, what are you thinking? Get this guy out of here. Unclean, unclean, unclean. Lepers are supposed to announce their presence and and make sure they leave a wide berth around everybody around them because they they might infect somebody else. It's likely that this man's life was defined by isolation. I, he might have been kicked out of his own home or he might have kicked himself out of his home just to protect his family and everywhere he went people avoided him don't make eye contact they thought walk a wide path around you don't want to catch whatever it is he has he maybe hadn't felt the touch of another person for a long long time so all of a sudden here he is maybe i don't know how he got there but appears out of the crowd kneeling in front of Jesus, and then these words spilled out of his mouth. Lord, 
If you are willing, you can make me clean. Notice the words, if you are willing. Pretty possible in his mind that Jesus wasn't willing and maybe maybe Jesus would condemn him like, why get back? What are you doing here? Instead, Jesus, the Holy One, God in the flesh, the one without sin, perfect purity, reached out and touched the unclean, the defiled, the outcast. I am willing, he said, be clean. That image of Jesus reaching out his hand to touch the unclean ought to stick in our heads. To everyone else, this was a disease to be avoided. Pushed away for fear of contamination. To Jesus, this was a human being made in the image of God. Jesus touches the outsider and it makes me wonder, who are the modern day lepers that he wants me to be willing to reach out and touch. Well, the narrative moves straight into the next account. And this time it's the Roman centurion who approaches Jesus. The centurion, of course, uh, wasn't a Jew. Most of the time the Bible refers to non-Jewish people as Gentiles. Now, these aren't na- name. this isn't a name that those those people gave to themselves. They didn't call themselves Gentiles. This just meant not Jewish, not one of us, outsider. And so um, that's what this Roman centurion was, an outsider. When we lived in China, wherever we went, we, we stuck out. It was impossible to miss the different features that we have and and believe it or not, um, you know, taller than many of the people. Uh, you might not guess that. But um, it was kind of funny to watch. People would be driving, uh, riding their scooters down the road and turn and look and keep driving. And you're like, whoa, hey, look ahead. Um, but little kids didn't have the filters that maybe the older people had. And, and they would point at us and, and say a phrase. Wagoren, Wagoren, Wagoren. Just means foreigner, foreigner, foreigner. And that gets a little annoying after a while. Um, and uh, a lot of times when people are shouting that at you, it, it feels like outsider, outsider, outsider. Well, this Roman centurion had the role and the uniform and the look and all of the things of the oppressing force in the country. The Jews didn't want him or his kind there. They, they resented the Romans. Hey, Jesus, we shouldn't help this guy. We shouldn't help this guy or his outsider servant. He doesn't belong here. He doesn't worship the way we do. Our practices say you can't even go into his house or you'll be unclean like he is. Well, maybe you know what happened next. The centurion demonstrated great trust in Jesus. And before healing his servant, Jesus made a a comment about insiders and outsiders. And here's what Jesus said. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west 
and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The insiders become the outsiders and the outsiders become the insiders. The kingdom of heaven is a major theme in the book of Matthew. Jesus was living out the values of this kingdom. He had come to launch the kingdom and we, his followers, are to pray for the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And here Jesus said, the outsiders are going to be sitting at the feast table of the kingdom of heaven. And it makes me wonder, as I pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, how does he want me to treat the outsiders? And who might I be pushing out that will end up be sitting next to me at the feast table of the kingdom? I'll come back to more about the centurion in just a minute, but let's keep moving on. The very next account has Jesus going to Peter's house. And they get there, and Peter's mother-in-law is in bed with a fever, and Jesus heals her. Now, at the first glance, this looks like it doesn't fit the pattern. It doesn't fit the outsider pattern. I mean, these look like insiders. It's Jesus at his friend's house and, and Peter's family that is sick. It, it looks like insiders. But think about for a minute the people that Jesus has just interacted with. He's interacted with a leper. He's interacted with a foreigner. And he's interacted with a woman. All of these people would not be allowed into the temple courts. The the help of the established religion was walled off from them. They were all outsiders. And yet Jesus, God in the flesh, went to them. He went to the outsiders and the outcasts and he ministered to them not based on their worthiness according to the law, but based on his grace. It makes me wonder, what lines have I drawn that leave people outside the walls of God's grace? Well, after, G- after uh, Peter's house, Jesus decided it was time to go to the other side of the lake. Now, the book of Mark tells us that this other side of the lake was known as the Decapolis, and, and it just, Decapolis just means ten Gentile cities and this particular 10 Gentile cities had been a problem about 150 years before Jesus time there was a king there who um, persecuted the Jews and did something pretty disgusting in Jewish Jewish eyes he went to the temple in Jerusalem and he sacrificed a pig on an altar to Zeus now In case you miss some of the symbolism there, um, of course, the altar in Jerusalem is the the center of worship. It's it's the holy place, the the place to meet God. Pigs were considered unclean animals, and Zeus is a false god. I I tried to come up with a modern-day parallel to this, and honestly, I couldn't come up with something that we would find so offensive. And so that act set off this powder keg that resulted in 
the Maccabean revolt, which is celebrated even today in the in the festival we know as Hanukkah, when the Jews revolted and and won this big victory. So this is the area that Jesus decides to take his disciples. He's um, the next, in fact, the next account of Jesus calming the storm. When you think about where they're going, that whole story of the storm takes on a whole different significance when the disciples are going to an area of their enemies. I, I imagine this going something like this. The disciples are packing up their gear, getting ready for this trip, and uh, Peter comes in from the garage and says, Hey, uh, Jesus, uh, I'm getting ready, I'm getting my stuff ready, and I'm just wondering, can you tell me where we're going? Because I'm trying to decide what to pack. And Jesus said, Oh, yeah, we're going to the area of the Gadarenes. All the disciples stop for a second and look at Jesus. Peter kind of winces. Is uh area of the gathering. Man, I I know that I said that I would go wherever Jesus went and I'd follow him wherever he went, but ugh, this is kinda this is kinda far out there. Um Alright. And he goes. So this story strikes me as kind of the opposite of the story of Jonah. In case you don't Remember all of the details of the story of Jonah. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach, to preach repentance to uh, his enemies. And Jonah is like, oh, brother, I know God is going to be gracious to those people, and I really don't want them to to repent and be forgiven. And so I'm going to jump on a boat going in the opposite direction. A storm blows up. The crew of the ship says, we got to figure out who the problem is. Jonah says, yeah, it's me. They grab Jonah, throw him in, in the ocean, and the storm calms. Now, here's the disciples in the boat. They don't go the opposite direction because, you know, Jesus has kind of pointed them in that direction. But a storm blows up, and um, I, I imagine them saying, oh, hey, Jesus, bummer, bad weather, got to turn around. Um. But instead of throwing the disciples overboard, Jesus stands and he rebukes the wind and the waves. The storm calms. And my guess is it was more than just the physical storm that Jesus dealt with right there. It was the storm of the fear of the disciples heading to the territory of their enemies. Those are exactly the kinds of places that Jesus likes to show up. He likes to show up in places we have decided are lost causes. I mean, he, he took the disciples to Samaria, another place that was their enemies. He takes the disciples here to the Decapolis. He likes to show up in places we would like to avoid because we don't want to deal with those people. There he is, annoyingly offering grace, stubbornly extending an invitation to the kingdom of heaven when we may have declared, you know, I don't know, those people are probably beyond help. Here's what happens. Jesus and his disciples arrive, and Jesus immediately delivers from bondage two people who were certainly beyond help. 
two guys who were possessed by demons, and Jesus frees them. They were so violent, it says that no one could pass that way. Here, here's a little interesting side note. If, if we were to zoom into this passage, it'd be interesting to point out that the town people come out and they see these two guys that are now not crazy and not violent, but they also see their livelihood, the pigs that ran off the cliff. And they're like, Jesus, uh, I don't know about you messing with our income here. I don't know about you messing with our economy. Uh, you know, we'd rather you just go away because, yeah, I get you set these two people free, but that kind of cost us something. Would you, how about you go back across the other side of the lake? And so Jesus does. Jesus' miracles are a pointer to the way that Jesus wants the world to be. They are pointers to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus did these things, and then he said, you know, whoever believes in me will do the works I do, and even greater. It makes me wonder, where does Jesus want to go that would cause me to wince? Is Jesus at work in any territories that belong to my enemies? Am I willing to go through a storm to go there with him and let him annoyingly offer grace and forgiveness to people? I have to confess that I prefer to put myself in the place of the outsiders in these accounts. It's, it's nicer to be an outsider here. I like the idea of Jesus coming along and touching my friends who are sick. This would have been a nicer sermon if I talked about how Jesus came to me when I was an outsider. It's more difficult to put my play, myself in the place of the insider and imagine Jesus touching and healing people that I'm not sure I like that much. When Jesus touches someone who my crowd has labeled unclean, that's kind of difficult. When Jesus heals the servant of one who my crowd has labeled the enemy, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. When Jesus loads me up and says, let's go over there and take grace to an area that belongs to your enemies, I don't know, that kind of causes a storm. And I say, uh, Jesus, bummer, bad weather. Let's turn back. But even as an insider, there is grace for us. I said I'd come back to the Roman centurion, so here it is. With the Roman centurion, we, we kind of preach those stories in a certain predictable formula. And I, I have to admit that I've preached this formula before. Here's the formula. Number one, point number one, the Gentile centurion was an amazing man. Point number two, he had such great faith. Point number three, be like this Gentile centurion. But that isn't the gospel message. Matthew's message is not what an incredible Gentile, but what an incredible Jesus. Yeah, Jesus commented on his faith, but it wasn't the quantity of his faith that he had more than everybody else, but it was 
the one in whom he placed his faith. The difference is this. In the first formula, you leave here believing that it's up to you. Whoever would be helped by Jesus must be great like this centurion and have more faith than everybody else. But in the gospel, you, you leave here believing that Jesus is great enough that whoever would come to him humbly, trusting not in their own power, but in his will find help. Insider or outsider doesn't matter. Anyone. When we really get the gospel message that salvation isn't reliant on our greatness, but on God's greatness, we can look at situations and we can look at people and we can look at systems that are broken and appear beyond hope and we can see a reason for hope. On the other hand, if we believe the first formula is really the way Christianity works, the way that says whoever would be helped by Jesus must be great like this centurion, then we'd have a lot of reason to despair about life. We wouldn't really have any reason to, to love or reach out to outcasts like Jesus did. In, instead, like the Pharisees, we would be afraid of them. Those people might contaminate us. Keep your distance. If you let them get close, too close, they might take you down with them. If I get involved with them, they might make me unclean. They might mess up my life. Getting involved with them might cost me something. And, you know, they don't demonstrate that they're great enough to pull themselves out of this, so why would I throw good money after bad? However, we are gospel people. We are people who believe that it isn't our greatness that saves us or anyone else, but it is the greatness and grace of God that can make the difference in all kinds of hopeless situations. There's an old song that says it better than I can. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. In Matthew, Jesus is pointing to realities that define the kingdom of God. His actions created a picture for us of a kingdom where sickness is healed where outsiders aren't beyond God's grace, where his people are willing to reach out and touch modern-day lepers, where situations and storms that look impossible are not beyond hope. We are kingdom people. I love it. Jesus never intended for the kingdom to only be some sweet day when this life is over. Instead, he taught us to pray and live. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he also said, let the little children come unto me. We're going to sing a song that declares the goodness and the reality of his kingdom. So would you stand and let's sing. Sky without a north star, a ship without an anchor, caught up in the current. My heart is prone to wander. All the roads I've taken 
Lead me back to nowhere. You're the destination. You're the way to get there. You can have it all. Be the song I sing. Be my guiding light. Savior of my soul. Be the Lord of my life. Every step I take. Always by my side. I am yours. You are mine. Be the Lord of my life. overflowing a beauty you're unveiling love that just keeps growing this is all I want I surrender all be the song I sing be my guiding light savior of my soul Every step I take, always by my side, I am yours, you are mine, be the Lord of my life. Would you go this week knowing that whether insider or outsider, God's grace is great enough for you? And then once you get a hold of that idea, don't keep, don't keep it for yourself. Don't just hold it. Spread it all over the place. Insider or outsider, God's grace is great enough. Take that. Spread hope all over. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Be the song I sing. Be my guiding light. Savior of my soul. Be the Lord of my life. Every step. 